But before we go any further, let me invite you to pray with me. Father, would you open our words, our, our minds, to the truth of your word. Open our eyes to see, our minds to comprehend, and our hearts to love the truth of your word. And God, I pray that by your spirit, you would prompt within each one of us a response to your word. That we ourselves would recognize the way that you have worked in our lives and want to work through us within your body and even within the world in the the context which you have placed us vocationally as ministers for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if the name Jenny Thompson means anything to you. Anyone remember that name? All right, so in 1992, in 1996, in 2000, and in 2004, Jenny Thompson was on the U.S. Olympic swim team. And she won 12 medals in the time of her career in swimming. But none of the medals, in the 12 medals she won, she won eight gold medals. But none of the medals that she won that were gold, none of them came in individual swimming events. In fact, that led many people to question about Jenny, whether she really should be among the Olympic greats in swimming. She even asked herself, it's, it's going to be very different to experience an individual gold versus a team gold. Jenny's accomplishments, though, I think, provide a tremendous example for someone whose genuine success came in the context of a unified team working together with others. This is how we should view, I think, our role in the church. I think this is what Paul is getting at in in many ways, that in the kingdom of God, greatness is not achieved through individual achievements. It's achieved through serving one another and a group, really, a team, a congregational approach to life. So Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant, right? So we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, this is what Paul is saying. Follow along as I read. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by what every joint with which it is equipped. Let me back up. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, 
makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This morning, I hope we see from this text that Christ has given spiritual gifts to every believer so that we might serve one another for the unity and growth of the church into maturity. This morning, I want us to answer really two questions that I think Paul kind of implies in the text here. And the first one is how, and the second deals with why. The how and the why of Christ giving spiritual gifts to the church. So what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians 4, remember, is the very practical outworking of what he's already said doctrinally in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. And so when we get to chapter 4, we're dealing with the very practical application of how we as a church, as a body of believers, the congregation, are to live out and to live out our faith daily, even in interaction with one another and before an onlooking world. So first this morning, I want us to see how has Christ answered this question, verses 7 through 11. How has Christ gifted the church? So in verses 1 through 6, Paul's focus has been on the church. He's been laying out the necessity of unity within the body. In fact, last week we saw how the church's unity was dependent on character, their character development, so to speak. But in verses 1 through 3, this character that the church was to have, the believers were to have in verse 2 specifically, they would have humility, gentleness, or meekness, and they would have patience. And so as, as believers, this ought to be present in everybody, every believer's life that we are growing in these ways, in the, in the sense that it follows according to what Christ himself has modeled for his people, for the church. We saw also that it was rooted in the common confession that we see in verses 4 through 6. And that common confession is one common confession in Christ, in God, in the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see it in verse 4 of chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Okay, So here's the common confession that all believers, that the church is based upon. So in verse 7, he builds on this unity, turning our attention for a moment to address the individuals that make up the church. How or in what ways has Christ gifted the church? We see the first way in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He has gifted the church through individual believers. Do you see that there in verse 7? It's not just certain individual believers. It's through who? Each one, right? In verse 7, he has gifted each one, each believer within the body of Christ. That means everyone in here this morning who has confessed and professed faith in Christ and has been born again has been gifted by the Holy Spirit of God for the intentional purpose of engaging in the body of Christ. So if someone says to you, callously, impatiently maybe, you must think you are God's gift to the church. You could say, why yes I do, I am. Or you could look at your neighbor next to you and tell them, hey, I'm God's gift to you, right? You could even say that to your spouse. Hey, I'm God's gift to you in more ways than one. Now, 
that may require that you have to work on this character trait of humility, depending on what frame of mind or what mindset you share that in. And it may require them to work on the, frame, on the mindset of, and this character trait of gentleness and patience, right? But here's what God is saying. Here's what Paul is saying to us. This is what Christ has done. He has gifted us. He has gifted us by, by His Spirit, through His Spirit. And this is the gracious work of Christ in our lives. Paul's saying that we are recipients of equipping grace here in verse 7. And that Christ has gifted every believer proportionately in accordance with His desire. This also means that you and I, church, each one of us, we are dependent upon one another. One commentator says in his wisdom, and to make each dependent on others, God has ordained not uniformity, but an endless variety of gifts for members of the body. Another commentator said, no member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. In other words, to each of us is given different gifts for the benefit of all. So here's the question, believer. If Christ has gifted you, and he has, the question that we should be asking is, how am I using my spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ and to serve in God's kingdom? In Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, I want you, you can turn there if you want, but I want to invite you just to listen as I read quickly through this parable. It's the parable of the tenants. Jesus is talking to those who are following him, and hear what he says. He says, the kingdom of God... For the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had received the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, now, a long time, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he, also, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and I have made two more talents. Here, his master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, who also, he also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you had, you had scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has... The ten talents, for everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, has entrusted to each one of us gifts in accordance with what He has measured out. It's not based on our own merit. There's no place for boasting in the kingdom of God. Only place for service. We're given these gifts for service to one another, service of one another, and for, for life, service of the life of the world, to testify to the life of the world. And every individual in the church is to measure, get this, we all should measure our importance in the kingdom of God, not in comparison to other believers. We all should measure our worth in the kingdom of God based upon what Christ has done for us and in concert with what God's calling and gifting is in our lives. And that is, we have all been equally called and equally gifted to participate in God's work in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you're changing diapers in the nursery on Sunday morning or if you're standing and preaching God's word. As we are faithfully serving and carrying out God's work, what he has called us to do, we are fulfilling God's calling in our lives, believer. So don't miss that. Don't place yourself in comparison to another believer who seems to have all of these gifts. Or don't elevate yourself over other believers who, doesn't, who don't seem to have the same gifts. Right? This is what Paul meant last week when he says that we're to have this characteristic of humility in our lives. The goal at the end of the day when we stand before God, is that he would look at us and he would say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So whether your gifting is, is, is the gift of, of faith or, or whether it's evangelism or whether it's giving or, or some sort of administration or helping others or compassion or mercy or teaching, whatever your gift is or, or some other multifaceted way of God calling you to serve in his kingdom, Whatever that gift is, the question is, are you using your gift in serving the body, in building up the body of Christ? Secondly, Jesus Christ has gifted the church through individual believers. No, Christ has gifted the church through individual, believer, individual believers. Secondly, he has, made, he has made this gifting possible by his sovereign power over his sovereign power and his rule over all things. We see this in verses 8 through 10. He quotes in verse 8, he quotes Psalm 68. So in verse 8, he says, Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68 is one celebrating that Yahweh is the Lord, the God Almighty who victoriously ascends his holy habitation, Mount Zion. So go back later and read through Psalm 68 and see what the psalmist is celebrating of God's victory over the nations. And the psalm paints this picture. The great surrounding mountains are personified as jealous nations that tower over the seemingly insignificant Mount Zion. And yet God has chosen this insignificant mountain, Mount Zion, to be his dwelling place among the nations. And just as he chose insignificant Mount Zion, he chose the insignificant people of Israel. And so the psalmist is celebrating that God is sovereign over all nations because he's defeated his enemies and he alone is the one to whom all nations must bow. And like a victorious king, surrounded by his vast army, he ascends his holy hill 
to dwell in his chosen place. You see, God is the victor in this psalm who, who plundered his enemy and who leads his captives in triumphal procession as he ascends his holy hill. And Paul takes this psalm and he applies this psalm to seeing Christ as the greater one who has ascended. He applies this psalm to the ascension of Christ. And so we have commentary in verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 4 on what he means when he quotes verse 18 there in verse 8. In saying he ascended, what does he mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. You know, I'm not 100% certain what Paul means when he says Christ descended. There's a lot of debate about that, and I'm not going to take the time this morning to go into the detail of it. You're welcome to go and to research that in more detail. I'd be happy to talk with you after, but I think minimally what Paul is speaking of here is Christ's humiliation, His death on the cross, and His burial. This is His descending but that Christ also triumphantly resurrected from the grave is pointed out as well when he says he ascended, not to Mount Zion, but he ascended to the heavenly sanctuary that the temple on Mount Zion pointed to. So in other words, Christ resurrected from the grave and ascended to the Father's right hand where he sits enthroned above all the heavens as he says in verse 10. Jesus Christ conquered Satan, he conquered sin and death. And through his resurrection, he ascended far above all the heavens. And so he sits enthroned there as sovereign king over all creation, and he fills all things. And here's the exciting part about what Paul is saying here. Because Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, this means that Christ's victory is a physical victory and a spiritual victory. It's physical in that he defeated death with his resurrection, and it's spiritual in that he took into captivity sin and all the forces of evil that sin and death bring about. And so Paul says when he ascended on high, verse 8, he gave gifts to men. He's quoting from an Aramaic translation here, where the tradition was that a conquering king would give gifts to his loyal people out of what he had plundered from his enemy when he took them captive. And in this sense, Paul is saying that Christ's victory was both eternal and it was spiritual. Christ then gives eternal and spiritual gifts to his people, to the church. He's given us the eternal gift of his spirit as a seal for our eternal inheritance. We see that in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And He has gifted each one of us with spiritual gifts. But then there's also a sense in which Jesus Christ has corporately gifted His body as a congregation. And this is primarily seen in the third way that we see here in the gifting. And that is through leaders. Christ has gifted the church corporately through leaders. Look at what he says in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Verse 12 tells us why to equip the saints. We'll see that in a minute. 
Paul intends for us to understand that these leaders are actually gifts to the church corporately, to the body. So first he looks at these two, we look at these two offices in verse 11 of the apostles and the prophets. Some actually hold today that the apostle and the prophet are offices that remain in the church. But I don't believe, I'm quite certain this isn't the sense in which Paul is using the word, the term, the office of apostle and prophet here. In fact, if we look back to Ephesians 2.20 and Ephesians 3.5, we would see how Paul has used this in context in his writing so far in Ephesians. Verse, uh, verse two, chapter 2, verse 20 says, Paul says, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The point is this. These offices, mentioned in verse 11, they have to do with the ministry of the Word. And Paul is saying that the apostles and the prophets, they were given and they spoke in, in the first generation of Christianity known as the apostolic age. Those 12 disciples plus Paul who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ and they were sent out by Christ for the establishment of His church. They were challenged with declaring new revelation from God and forming the canon of Scripture that we have now, especially that which is in the New Testament. And so we have the ministry of the Word through the apostles and the prophets that the church is built upon through the foundation of Christ. So when Paul speaks about the the apostles and the prophets, he, he's speaking about God's Word and the ministry of God's Word in our lives. But we also know that in another sense, this word apostle, it simply means the sent one, right? So apostolos means sent ones. And so in that sense, we as a church, we still send out missionaries. So I'm not arguing against the sense of of us sending out we are still sent out into the world but that's not primarily what Paul is speaking of here missionaries yes they are a gift to the church but I think that is covered in evangelists and then prophets we see this word prophets prophetes and this word prophet is the one who speaks truth and the sense in which Paul's using using it here it is that of new revelation from God and so In our day and age, we have scriptural truth. We still exercise, maybe, the gift of prophecy, but not in the sense of new revelation. So we would say the one who is gifted with, as the the prophet, our prophecy today, is one who utters forth truth of God's word, making application in the daily lives of God's people today, but not one who is uttering new revelation of God's word. But then thirdly, we see the office of the evangelist. And I think for a moment, we just have to kind of forget everything we know today of the evangelist and what we might see or think would connotate the evangelist. This, word term, this term for evangelist is used only about three times in the New Testament. One of them is in, in 2 Timothy 4-5 where Paul is talking to Timothy, the elder of the church of Ephesus, and he's telling him, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. So the term evangelist speaks simply of this, of a gifting by Christ for the clear proclamation of the gospel so that people who have never heard the gospel of Christ might believe. 
When I say our modern day understanding of an evangelist needs to be forgotten, what I mean is that it's incomplete. It's a partial picture, not a full, robust picture of what I believe Paul intends for us to see here. When we think of an evangelist, we tend to think of someone like Billy Graham or someone like Sammy Tippett or maybe Louis Palau. And I praise God for the ministry of these men, but I think that's only one component, a part of the bigger picture of the evangelist's role within the congregation. In the New Testament, evangelists, they were missionaries and church planners. They went out where Christ was not named and they led people to faith in Christ and then they planted a church there and they started a work and began doing this work of discipling. And perhaps God would raise up a pastor teacher or pastors and teachers among that body and then that evangelist might travel to another area and then again preach the gospel, proclaim it where Christ has not been named and begin a church there. I think this is a New Testament model of what we see within the evangelist and the gifting of an evangelist in the local congregation. And so there is certainly room for the ministries of Billy Graham and Louis Palau and uh, and, and Sammy Tippett, and I praise God for those ministries. But I think we need to see the big picture here, that as God has gifted our congregation with evangelists, these who are gifted to clearly present the Word of God in a compelling way, We would support that work. We would join them and go with them in the proclamation of the gospel. I think this is how God designs and desires to grow His church even numerically. And that those who are gifted as evangelists would work to teach the body of faith, those maybe who are fearful in sharing their faith, how to better share their faith. And so Paul says that the evangelist is a gift those evangelists, it goes without saying, would accompany the mission team, right? That, that goes to, say for us, Uganda. And goes door to door sharing the gospel in order to see new converts come to the faith. And in order to see them plugged into the local congregation that we work with. And so we see all of, we see the evangelists as a gift within the congregation. Helping to lead the congregation out and being outward, proclaiming the hope of the gospel. The hope of the truth of Christ to transform our lives. Kent Hughes refers to the evangelist. I, I would say that an illustration maybe of how Crosspoint has done that in the past has been the sending out of, uh, of Pastor Byron and a team from here to go to Mid-City to replant Grace in Mid-City to establish a work where Christ is not named and, and this, this church is, uh, is dying there. And so they go there and they replant, right? Crosspoint sends that team out to do that. And another example would be like in Uganda when, when, uh, when Pastor George in Bugari saw the work that Crosspoint had done with replanting the church in Mid-City and they said, you know what? We can do the same thing. And then they send out Pastor Jackson to a place called Isra and they send out Pastor Agre to another place and they send out another pastor to another village. And these brothers begin starting a work for the gospel, sharing their faith, building the church. This is the work of the evangelist. And so when we read in Matthew 28 in the the Great Commission that Jesus says to the disciples, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And listen, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We see this authority that Christ gives to the disciples for going and making disciples. Part of that is sharing the gospel and seeing new converts come to the faith. The other part of that is the church coming along and equipping these new converts growing together. And that's what Paul is advocating for in these gifts that have been given to the church body. Well, fourth and fifthly, shepherds and teachers. Kent Hughes refers to the evangelist as the obstetricians of the church bringing forth new birth, right? Then he calls the pastors and teachers the pediatricians of the church laboring to ensure healthy church growth. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not overlap there. Certainly, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, Timothy, as the elder, the pastor, the teacher of the church. He is still to do the work of an evangelist. And I would be, uh, I would be dishonest if I did not say to you that this is an area of personal growth where I need to grow in doing the work of an evangelist in my own life, in my own relationships daily. In fact, in our elders meeting this past week, I was transparent with the the elders and said, guys, you need to pray for me because I've recognized in my own life through studying this text that evangelism was an area of weakness in my life. I want to see people come to faith in Christ. I'm ecstatic to see my son come to faith in Christ. I want to see all of my children come to faith in Christ. I want to see my neighbors come to faith in Christ, as I'm sure many of you do. But sometimes we lack the motivation or the encouragement or the unction to take that step of faith and to open our mouths and to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us in having hard conversations, difficult conversations, sharing scripture, sharing our testimony. And so we're called to do the work of an evangelist and we see the evangelist as one who is in our midst as a gift. We see shepherds and teachers also in our midst as a gift. These two offices are overlapping. The word for shepherd is where we get our word pastor. And it is the role of the shepherd that's demonstrated by God himself as an archetype of caring for his people. The imagery, as we might imagine, is a shepherd caring for his flock. He's feeding, he's guarding, he's leading, he's caring for the people. And so here Paul applies a term to the office of the church where men are called and and gifted by God to shepherd God's people. And so pastors are to pattern their ministry after Christ who himself said, I am the good shepherd who demonstrated feeding, guarding, leading, and caring for God's people. And so as I shared earlier, this is the awkward part of the analogy where I say, church, God has gifted you by giving you me, right? But listen, God has gifted me by giving you to me. God has gifted the congregation by raising up men within this congregation who would serve as elders through Drew, through Mr. Al, through David. But we're also praying that other men would be raised up in our midst who would come and be able to serve, that God would do this work because he is at work equipping the church to minister to one another. And he gifts the church with shepherds, pastors, and with teachers. See, the role of the teacher overlaps here. And that the pastor and teacher, the pastor carries out the role of teaching. All pastors teach in the sense 
that they exposit the Word of God, maybe not from the pulpit, but in some form or fashion, pastors are gifted with the role of teaching. But not all teachers are pastors. Those who are teachers carry out their role by feeding God's people through the gift of teaching. Through the gift of teaching His Word. But they're not necessarily pastors or shepherds over God's people. In fact, in James chapter 3, verse 1, James exhorts the church, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such you will incur a strict of judgment. So it is a weighty gift. It is a heavy responsibility to stand before people and say, Thus saith the word of the Lord, right? But it's also something that when God calls and equips, we must be responsive. We must follow. It's an important work of of the teacher to rightly divide the word of truth for the edification of the body so that God's people are built up through His word. Christ has given spiritual gifts to every believer so that we might serve one another for the unity and the growth of the church into maturity. The second question I wanted to answer this morning Why has Christ gifted the church? We see this in verses 12 through 16. The answer, He has gifted the church for service. He has gifted the church, secondly, for unity and maturity. And He has gifted the church, thirdly, for growth. Verses 12 and 16 tell us how He has gifted the church for service. Paul, continuing from verse 11, says that the the leaders are a gift to equip The saints, right? We're kind of back where we started. Verse 7, each one of us has been gifted. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know this word ministry is the word for service. We are then being equipped by God's word in order to labor together in serving one another. So how do we serve each other? We serve each other in ways that build one another up, that build up the body of Christ. What are the needs of the body? What are the needs and lives of brothers and sisters of the faith? I think this includes from taking meals to mowing yards to caring for the sick to visiting those who are in the hospital, praying with them, sending cards, to teaching, to any of the other areas of giftedness we have spoken about. Church, how is God calling us to serve? How is God calling you to serve Him? To use the gift that He has given you. To engage in the work of ministry, the work of service. Verse 16 kind of communicates to us that we don't live in a vacuum. We, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The beauty of the church is that though we're sinners who still sin, Christ has redeemed us. And He uses our diverse personalities and giftings to complete one another and to hold the body together. It says that we're joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. This means even that individual members belonging to one another are working to equip one another, but also that the leaders within the congregation are working to equip the church, the body, for service. 
And it says when each part is working properly, verse 16, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so we are gifted for service to one another, even, I would say, for service to the world. But we're also gifted for unity and maturity. Verses 13 and 14, and in verse 13, it it states the goal for the church and each individual believer until we all attain the unity of the faith to a mature manhood. In other words, unity comes through the knowledge of the Son of God. And maturity means that we're growing into the stature of Christ-likeness. So knowing Jesus produces unity among his people. And we live in community with one another, serving one another, learning and being taught by the word of God so that we grow into maturity. Christ has gifted the church for unity and maturity. And this maturity is highlighted by contrast in verse 14 where he kind of shows where we've come from. He says, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint by Sorry, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, one of my favorite things to do is go as a family to take vacation every year to go to the beach. And it never fails. You've seen this a thousand times over. If you've been to the beach or if you've taken your kids to the beach, you let them for the first time kind of wade out into the water, right? And as you're going out into the water, the waves are crashing against the sand, there's that breaking point, and they get just to it, and as a wave comes up, they run back, and then they run back to it, and then one time, the wave just smacks them and knocks them down, right? And then they turn around, they run to you crying, they've got snot coming out of their nose because of salt water, and then, then they grab your hand, and they want you to walk with them into the water, right? They feel more comfortable when their parents are there holding them when the big waves are coming, And here's what Paul's saying, the distinction between the mature Christian and the one who is like the child being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes. You see, the believer is to grow up into maturity doctrinally through being taught the Word of God. Pastors and teachers are gifted to the congregation in order to teach the Word of God, to to teach sound doctrine, to help guard us against false doctrine and false teaching that that would wreak Uh, wreak havoc in our lives and bring shipwreck in our faith. So the point that he's saying here is that as we're part of the community of saints, we're even guarded in our lives as as we grow and we understand God's Word through the gift of pastors and teachers. We must see how these gifts work together for the building up of the body of Christ. The third and final reason that Christ has gifted the church for the church's growth. We see this in verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I think this speaks to the spiritual and the numerical growth of the church. I won't focus on numerical growth. I think that can come through evangelism and the work of the evangelist within the body, leading and teaching the church, but for the spiritual growth, Christ desires His people to grow in knowledge and understanding, which leads to our maturity. This internal focus is seen in the phrase, speaking the truth in love. Literally, we're to be truthing in love, is what He's saying. And, And I think this is easier said than done. How many of you have ever been equipped with truth, and then you used it as a hammer to beat somebody over the head with it? I have. Sometimes truth can be a dangerous thing, can it? 
but here's the call. Go back to, chap- go back to verses 1 through 3, particularly verse 2, right? Where we're growing in humility and gentleness and patience. And this is matched up in the believer's life with truthing to one another in love, speaking truth in love. You see, the desire of the believer is to speak truth in love so that the body grows up. But doing it in love means that we want to see the outcome of, if this is truth that's confrontational, we want to see the outcome of reconciliation and redemption. So a good question to ask is, what's my motive here? Is it to put this person in their place? Or is it to see them reconciled to the body, reconciled to me? Is it to see redemption happen in their life? Or is it to make them walk away feeling bad about themselves? Is the point of me sharing this to bring glory to God? If it is, have I prayed for this person before I go and speak to them with truth and love? You see, this is going to build the body up. And just as we want someone who's going to lovingly speak the truth to us, we should also be those who lovingly speak the truth to others. You see, Christ has given spiritual gifts to every believer so that we might serve one another for the unity and growth of the church into maturity. How has Christ gifted you, believer? Why has Christ gifted you, believer? Are you using your gifts for the building up and the serving of the body? I pray that you are. But let me exhort us this morning. Let us come before the Lord and ask Him to strengthen us, to serve as He has gifted in accordance with the gift that He's given us. Let us seek to be faithful in discharging the gifts that He has given us in the midst of the body. Maybe that means you need to step up and to serve in some particular ways. Maybe, maybe for you that looks like serving in an area that no one else wants to, but receiving the blessing of being obedient to God. There are literally probably 20 areas that I could speak right now, but I want to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life to challenge you in how you should serve within the body of Christ. Let us pray. Father, as we come before your word, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you desire to equip us and to use us as your people to not only build up this local congregation and to seek unity and bring maturity within this local body, but also to proclaim your gospel to the world, to bring about unity in the church. You've called us to use our gifts in service of one another and even to support the work of the evangelist and to to follow the work of the evangelist in our midst. And so we pray, God, that you would raise up opportunities, raise up servants, raise up men even in the church who would be willing to or desire to be pastor, that you would call even as elders. And Father, we pray that you would receive all the glory for all that you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?
You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. And great are you, Lord. It's your Shout your praise, our hearts will cry. 